We have been in a series, as you know, working our way verse by verse through Romans 14 and 15 regarding how Christians can learn to get along with one another in the body of Christ. Because of what we have just witnessed, five of our own members of the congregation who have completed and received their certificates of completion from the Bible Church of Little Rock's Ministry Training Center, teaching theology and doctrine. I'm just so grateful to God. I'm so grateful to God to see what He has done in fashioning the Ministry Training Center to begin with, and also now for those men, young and old, who would like to continue their studies and pursue the Expositors Seminary, which the Lord has graciously and providentially brought to us as well, and to see men ordained to vocational ministry and be sent out to minister on behalf of Christ. It's a joy to a pastor's heart. This is, of course, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, duty of a man of God to be able to teach and preach in such a way that men and women are trained to serve Christ. I guess what I'm saying is that this morning I want to concentrate on being a person who is gratefully advertising the Ministry Training Center and encouraging you to be a part of it. I looked on our website and This is what we say about our ministry training center. At the beginning of this new millennium, the Bible Church of Little Rock, according to its commitments to the priorities of evangelism and edification, Matthew 28, 19 to 20, and Ephesians 4, 11 and following, the Bible Church of Little Rock launched a new ministry dedicated to equipping people at even higher levels so that they might be better prepared to carry out these divinely mandated responsibilities. The training center's most basic purpose is to fulfill the Apostle Paul's command recorded in 2 Timothy 2.2, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Our consequent purpose is, is to see the local church not only training her own, but also sending them out for service abroad, like the Antiochian model in Acts chapter 13. And then our own beloved Dr. George Zimmick, who is really a pillar, who is one who has invested most chiefly in those 700 over the last seven and a half years to be able to receive the great benefit of teaching that they have received. Dr. Zimmick says, who would benefit from our ministry training center? Individuals who might benefit from this ministry of the Bible Church of Little Rock are, and this is my plug for you, any committed Christian desiring to stretch and grow more into the image of Christ and to serve more effectively within the body of Christ. Someone who may want to test the waters by enrolling in some courses to see if God perhaps would have him seek spiritual leadership in his local church, or even eventually to prepare himself for a full-time vocational ministry, or someone who is already committed to pursuing future full-time service and needs all of the tools necessary for effective ministry or a man already in full-time pastoral ministry wanting to get more training or to refresh his original training. And there have been some who have pursued our training ministry from around central Arkansas and beyond. Of course, the Lord has given us a more advanced program, the Expositor's Seminary, to train men and to see them ordained and sent out to ministry. So it really covers the gamut from anybody who says, I just want to know my Bible better, all the the way to someone who says, 
I want to serve God vocationally over time. I've been thinking a lot about this recently because as so many of you know, when you grow older, as I seem to be struggling in doing, you are constantly, I think, if really you're reflective and most appropriately so, on all of those who in the past have trained you and given you so much and worked with you and nurtured you and sought to mature you in the faith, disciple you, to teach you what you need to know to be an effective witness for Christ, to be a more mature believer. And as I grow older, I, of course, can think of men like Dr. John MacArthur and Dr. George Zimmick, who was so formative in my own training and who the Lord has graciously, along with his precious wife Judy, brought to our own fellowship so that mentor and student could work together, even as Dr. Zimmick in his 60s continues to teach and preach and disciple. What a joy for a young man like me to be able to have one of my mentors to minister alongside me and for me to continue to learn from him in pastoral staff meetings and elder meetings and in other venues. What a joy, what a privilege to continue that mentoring process of a young pastor. And I thought recently, in fact even yesterday, as I received a letter from one of my other mentors, Dr. James Roscup, who after 43 years of teaching in theological education in seminary has partially retired so that he might take care of his ailing wife. And as I read a bio that was sent by a would-be publisher who is seeking an endorsement from me for Dr. Roscup's book on prayer, and by the way, if this is ultimately published, and I think it's a new venture that may actually be published by Lagos Bible Software electronically as a book, which would be such a help. It's Dr. Roscup's musings expositionally, exegetically on the topic of prayer. And he sent me a couple of sample chapters, and there was a request that I might be able to endorse it for this potential publisher, and of course I will because I took his class entitled Biblical Exposition of Prayer, and I'm so thankful that the Lord has allowed him to continue over 15 years of writing this publication that I trust will, in fact, be published soon. As I read the information about the book, it is, quite frankly, his magnum opus, just like Dr. Zimmick's magnum opus, which is his book, The Word of, the Word of God and the Child of God, his exposition and exegesis and homiletics of every single verse, 176 verses of Psalm 119. It's wonderful from Dr. Zimmick. If you've not read it, you should. Dr. Roscup taught me about prayer in this class, and I'm so grateful to endorse this particular book. He has commented on every single time in the entire 66 books of the Bible that prayer is mentioned. 2,900 pages of information and teaching on the subject of prayer. There are only a few Old and New Testament books that don't mention prayer. I think maybe only five of them. So from Genesis to Revelation, he has culled and written and mused on every single time prayer or the implication of prayer has been mentioned in our Protestant Bibles. What a task. What a study. And I can't wait to read 2,900 pages to learn and grow from my mentor yet again. One of the things that impacted me was in this letter that he sent to me that I received yesterday which really motivated me to do what I want to do in my preaching ministry this morning, is that he said this in a handwritten note at the bottom of this letter. Lance, of all my students, and I thought about that, with 43 years of students, thousands of them literally, of all my students, you are one who really stands out amid the years. 
And I was so humbled by that. So humbled. So struck with the privilege that has been mine to learn from these godly men. And to have them pour their lives into me. And to think that Dr. George Zemeck is here and that for the last seven and a half years and Lord willing, for many years to come, he would be able to also pour his life into you. What a privilege. If if you've never taken one of the ministry training center classes, you ought to. It will whet your appetite to know your Bible in a greater way and to know your God in a greater way. Now, I know that there are times when some people might say, but why? It seems that it's so academic. And I suppose that in some ways that's true. There are classes you must study. There are texts you have to pour over your Bible. All of that's true. And I suppose it's also true that sometimes people say, you know, I I even have, I admit, a negative connotation in my own heart when I even hear, hear the word theology. Because it sounds so academic. It sounds so sterile. But it really doesn't have to be. Bruce Demarest and Gordon Lewis in their book, Integrative Theology, says this, the root meaning of the word theology is the organized study, that's logos, of God, theos. Therefore, it is the topical and logical study of God's revealed nature and purposes. And who wouldn't want to study theology when defined like that? The study of God, the study of His nature, the study of His revelation, the study of His purposes. St. Augustine, the great theologian of the fourth century church taught that theology was the rational expression or the discourse about God. What's so greater, what's so grander than to talk about God, to discourse about God? Many, of course, have said rightly that theology is the study or the science of God. And it's right there that someone might say, but see, you've turned it into a science. You've turned this idea of the theology about God into something that sounds so clinical, so academic. But listen to R.C. Sproul as he attempts to answer that very question. He says, quote, Every Christian is a theologian. We are always engaged in the activity of learning about the things of God. We are not all theologians in the professional sense, academic sense, but theologians we are for better or worse. The for worse is no small matter. Second Peter warns that heresies are destructive to the people of God and are blasphemies committed against God. They are destructive because theology touches every dimension of our lives. The Bible declares that as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Those ideas that do grasp us in our innermost parts are the ideas that shape our lives. That's right. He goes on to say, we are what we think. When our thoughts are corrupted, our lives follow suit. We all know that people can recite the creeds flawlessly and make A's in theology courses while living godless lives. We can affirm a sound theology and live an unsound life. But it is still a requisite for godly living. How can, Sproul says, we do the truth without first understanding what the truth is? absolutely right. It is our task then to study theology. It is our duty. It is our devotion. It is our joy because you know what is the result of studying theology? It is none other than obedience to Jesus Christ. And that is Matthew 28, 18 to 20, teaching them to observe whatsoever I have commanded you. 
Wayne Grudem says it this way, The basic reason for studying systematic theology then is that it enables us to teach ourselves and others what the Bible says, thus fulfilling the second part of the Great Commission. Theology helps correct our wrong thinking about God and our world. Wouldn't you want to have theology then to correct our wrong thinking about God and His world? Someone well said it, every sin problem is at its heart a wrong view of God. The study of theology is helping us to overcome rebellious ideas, wrong thoughts about God. Studying theology benefits us spiritually because it helps us make better decisions later on in life when new questions of doctrine arise. For instance, several years ago there was a need to create a movement called the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy because there were questions being waged in the church about inerrancy and uh, the sufficiency of Scripture and There was a controversy in the 80s about the lordship of Christ and there are controversies today about the doctrine of justification and the Roman Catholic view and the Protestant view and there are controversies about the role of women in the church and worship and on and on it goes. Wayne Grudem says a helpful analogy at this point is that of a jigsaw puzzle. If the puzzle represents what the whole Bible teaches us today about everything then a course in systematic theology would be like filling in the border and some of the major items pictured in the puzzle. But we will never know everything that the Bible teaches about everything, so our jigsaw puzzle will have many gaps, many pieces that remain to be put in. Solving a new real-life problem is analogous to filling in another section of the jigsaw puzzle. The more pieces one has in place correctly to begin with, the easier it is to fit new pieces in and the less apt one is to make mistakes. We ought to study theology for that very purpose. We ought to study theology because it benefits you and me spiritually because it forces us to grow. The truth confronts us where we are. And it forces us to make adjustments about our life. We've got to study theology because it allows us to better understand God and therefore better able to glorify Him. God, as our friend John Piper says, is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Or you could say that God is most glorified in us when we are involved in a greater understanding of who He is. Piper writes, sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. No one sins out of duty. We sin because it holds out some promise of happiness. That promise enslaves us until we believe that God is to be more desired than life itself, which means that the power of sin's promise is broken by the power of God's. All that God promises to be for us in Jesus stands over against what sin promises to be for us without Him. You ought to learn theology so that you can learn what sin is to stay away from it and to learn how to glorify God so that you can understand and stay close to Him. Theology is to be studied prayerfully, illuminatively, humbly, mindfully, dependently, scripturally, worshipfully, meditatively, all of those doesn't have to be so overly academic that you're just studying theology for theology's sake, not so that you can have a fat head. Have you seen those commercials, by the way, recently? Fathead.com. You know, these sports figures 
that you can buy and put on the wall of your son's room where the guy's lifelike, six-foot-tall, fathead.com. We're not talking about theologicalfatheads.com. It's not what we're talking about. You don't go to these ministry training center classes for the purpose of enlarging your head. It's for the purpose of enlarging your heart. For the opportunity to love Jesus Christ with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. I wish all of you would take at least one, if not all, of these ministry training center classes. And I think we all ought to applaud five people, as we did, who have persevered going through, as it were, the great tribulation for the sake of loving Jesus Christ. Because do you realize that this is the very most important matter for the church? The truth. The truth. Truth matters. That's why the Expositors Seminary Board came up with the motto for the Expositors Seminary, and it is this, because truth matters, dot, 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 for life and ministry. Truth matters. The truth of God, bibliology, theology proper, Christology, pneumatology, angelology, satanology, demonology, anthropology, homardiology, soteriology, sanctification, ecclesiology, eschatology, all of it is important, all of it and more because the truth matters, because God matters. That's why when one of the Puritans was asked during the Puritan age, why are you attempting to be so precise? And he wisely responded and said, because I serve a precise God. You ought to know theology. Not some ivory tower, academic, fathead exercise, but an exercise that inflames your heart because if you claim yourself to be a part of the church, the church, according to a passage that I want to unfold for you this morning, is told to us in 1 Timothy 3.15, these words. Open your Bible to that text, 1 Timothy 3.15, and listen to these words. 1 Timothy 3.15, this is the church. This is who the church is. Yes, it is true that the philosophy of the church is that we exist to provide a context of loving fellowship with one another for the purpose of mutual edification. That's true. And yes, it is true that the ministries of the church exist as an opportunity whereby people can grow through the application of the teaching and through the utilization of your talents for ministry, that's true. It is true that the mission of the church is that we exist to be a light to a dark world for the evangelization of the lost, that's true. But the number one reason that you and I are a part of the church is that the church is the repository of divine truth. This is what Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.15. He says, verse 14, I hope to come to you soon... But I am writing these things to you so that for the very purpose that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave, conduct himself in the household of God. Here it is, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. My friends, this is who we are. The church itself is not a physical, literal building. And it for sure wasn't when Paul wrote these very words. The church was constituted in the makeup of the people. The people were the church. And if it is the household of God, 
which describes the church of the living God, here is what defines us primarily, preeminently, that we are a pillar and support or buttress or foundation of the truth. We lose the truth, we've lost everything. No pillar. No infrastructure. No buttressing, no support, no foundation, no building, no household, no church. Now do you see why the ministry training center and Bible studies and the expositor seminary and small groups and care groups are so vitally important. Do you see now why faithful attendance in worship services to sit under the preaching of the Word of God is so vital? So many churches abandoning, forsaking, deserting the truth especially in public corporate worship because they think we don't want to be overly academic. We don't want to be stuffy. We want to be relevant. We want to try to do what we can to make sure that we jam the place with people. But when you get them there, what do you have if you don't teach the truth? You know what you have? You have a crowd. That's all you have. You have a crowd. Church exists because it is a repository. That's a receptacle. That's something that you can store something in. And you're that something. You're that receptacle. I'm that storage facility, as it were. And we will have, by God's great design, sovereignly so, the opportunity ourselves as the Bible Church of Little Rock to be the very repository for divine truth. How can we do that? Study, learn, grow, pray. So that the truth may not just be there in someone else, but the truth may be in me. That's what the church is. That's what the church does. Let me give you in the time that I have an opportunity just to, just to whet your appetite about this tremendous verse where he says really four things about the church. Notice he says in verse 15 that you ought to, to know, you ought to have an understanding, a grappling with how one ought to behave. And then notice this designation in the household of God. That's number one. And then he says, which is the church of the living God. That's the living leader of the household of God, God Himself. And then he says, thirdly, that the church is a pillar. And then fourthly, although those are connected with each other, a pillar and buttress, two ways of saying the same thing, of the truth. Four things I want to camp out on this morning. Let's talk first about the household of God. The household of God. Oikos. House, household. The household of God. That is a marvelous and sweet phrase. We're all a part of God's house. Forget the building. Forget the four walls. Forget the roof. Forget the maintenance. It's not, it's not what he's talking about. He's talking about us. And he's talking about who we are as persons. Not building Maybe it's unfortunate that from probably about the 4th century on, churches really became identified with the building and not the people. But it's ourselves that make up the Bible Church of Little Rock. It's not, it's not the brick and the mortar. It's ourselves. And we are the household of God. I love that. We're the dwelling place of God. Oh, I wish we had time to look over all that the Scripture says about household, or maybe even the word temple, borrowing from some of the Old Testament. But look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is another way of talking about the household of God, the household of faith. Look at verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 3. This is, of course, talking primarily to leaders in the church and how they pastor and shepherd Paul talks about himself and he talks about Apollos 
And he talks about planting and watering. Notice verse 9. We are God's fellow workers, these leaders. And you, you the church, you the Corinthians, you are God's field, God's building. See the metaphors that he's using there? According to the grace of God, verse 10, given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one, let each pastor, let each elder, let each leader take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's the cornerstone. We don't exist in the church as a church without Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. He's properly the foundation of it all as the cornerstone. But if we build and we build on the foundation, building up the church with gold, silver, precious stones... Wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, for it will be revealed by fire. And of course, the gold and silver and precious stones are those things which a pastor does to build up the church. And I would suggest that there will be a day of reckoning for those pastors, Christian leaders, elders who have not sought to build the church with the proper foundation foundation of the teaching of the Word of God, that is the gold and the silver and the precious stones. And building up the church and all of this matter about the church and its growth, and if you're building and you're gathering a crowd, but you're not teaching them the truth, and if you're not sequentially showing them the opening of the understanding of the Word of God, then I suggest Paul's warning is that it's wood, hay, and straw. And each man's work will become evident. And according to verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, and it will if it's gold and silver and precious stones, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, that's the wood, hay, and the stubble, that's what burns, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And who who wants to be judged in that way? And then this marvelous statement, verse 16, Do you not know that you are God's temple? He says you're God's field, you're God's building, now you're God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you. And if anyone, this teacher, this pastor, this Christian worker, destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. And you, you plural, you are, Corinthians, that temple. Let no one deceive himself. That's the dwelling place of God. That's the temple of God. That's the field of God. That's the building of God. And we must exist primarily as teachers to build up the church with gold and silver and precious stones. And that, my friends, is none other than things just like the ministry training center. We're trying to build upon the foundation of this church with gold and silver and precious stones. Does it only occur there? No. It occurs throughout the whole life and the body of the church. But could it be there that you are taught the Word of God in such a way that you can then teach others, your family, your children, your own ministry, your marriage? Yes, absolutely so. You are God's dwelling place. You're God's household. We ought to do exactly what 1 Peter 2, 5 says. We are, as it were, bricks in the spiritual house of God being built up to an edifice that glorifies Jesus Christ as living stones. Boy, I want to be a part of the building of that kind of house. That kind of household Church is God's family, and He's our Father. How could people call God their Father by refusing to be a part of His family, by refusing to be a part of the the church, the household of God, the dwelling place of God? And how can somebody who is in the household of God as a full-fledged member of that household, not say to himself, I want to be a more mature member of the household. I want to be respected. I, I want to learn. I want to grow. I want to mature. I want to 
be this repository, this receptacle of divine truth. That's what I want. I want to study. I want to grow. Somebody says, I don't have time. Cut out whatever it is that's preventing you from studying your Bible in such a way that your heart is inflamed with love and joy in Jesus Christ. It probably means if you don't have time, you're doing something that you should not be doing. This is our life. This is who we are. To build each other up, to edify one another. The church is existing. We'll find this out in Romans 14 and 15. For the upbuilding of one another. This is the upbuilding of the family of God, the household of God, the dwelling of God. And then notice, secondly, we are, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.15, the church of the living God. Can you imagine how those words rang out in Paul's own day when they were serving all of those dead pagan idols? In Ephesus, you had dead pagan idols all over the place. Here was the God of this, the God of that. Here was the God for Monday, the God for Tuesday, the God for Wednesday, the God for health, the God for love, the God for fertility, the God for everything. All kinds of gods. Here was the problem with all of them. Here was the common denominator. They're dead. They're all dead. They're inanimate. They don't work. They don't do what you ask them to do. The church is the church of the living God. He's alive. And He's alive in the person of Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Jesus Christ the preeminent in the church. You ought to learn from Jesus Christ. He's the cornerstone. He's the preeminent one. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And if the head of the church, Jesus Christ, is living, and if God the Father Himself is living, the living God, then they also provide the very means whereby the truth is disseminated to us. And that's Hebrews 4.12. And that is that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and is able to penetrate even into the very thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's what study is. That's what theology is, where God, through the Word of God, is showing you the very thoughts and intentions of your own heart. You ought to study theology for that reason. I want to study a living book, being myself a living person, for the opportunity to serve a living God so that I might glorify the living Christ. Wow. Not a dead idol, not a pagan idol, not an inanimate object, a living person and a living word so that I can serve the living God. And then he says, it is the pillar of the truth. Oh my, the pillar of the truth. Why would people jettison The truth in preaching, in teaching, in ministry training centers, in seminaries. Why would they jettison the truth for the thought that if we teach the truth, they're not going to perceive that it's relevant? That's a satanic lie. Don't you buy it. Because the next time you go through a crisis in your own life, when the doctor comes in from the examination of the biopsy and says you have cancer, What are you going to do? What are you going to say? The only thing that you have in your life to respond to such a thing is the infrastructure we call the pillar of the truth. What truth are you going to cling to there? How are you going to grab onto the column? Literally, this word stulos means pillar or column. And what does that do? It rests on the foundation and it's like a load-bearing, and the walls go up, and the roof is on, and it stays as a structure, solid, because there is load-bearing on the pillars, because the pillars are made up of truth. 
It's not going to let you down. It's not going to collapse around you. Not at all. You've got to know it, and you have to have it preached to you, and you have to have it drummed into you. I don't know about you, but I need every Sunday of my life to be here, even if I wasn't the preacher, listening to it, because as soon as I get out of the service into the parking lot, I've forgotten most of it. I need it drummed into me. I need it chiseled into me. I need it hammered into me. I need someone to hammer on me every Sunday and then take a screwdriver and screw it in and wedge it in to my brain because I forget most of it. You can, you can read a passage. You can read 1 Timothy 3.15 and you can say, Amen. And then when your eyes come up off the page, you've essentially, more often than not, forgot what you just read. We... we are, as the church, the very pillar of the truth. This is, this is amazing. Look at Revelation chapter 3. This same word, stulos, is mentioned to the church in Sardis. And this is, this is amazing. Revelation 3.12. The one who conquers, the one who's victorious, that's the the Greek word Nike, Nike, victory, the one who is victorious, the church at Philadelphia, Sardis is mentioned in the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1 to verse 6, then the church in Philadelphia, verse 7, all the way to verse 13, and notice verse 12, the one who conquers, the one who is victorious, I will make him a pillar of That's our word, stulos. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Temple is the church of God. And for the one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar. You want to be a pillar in the church? You know, in in Galatians 2.9, there is a reference to believers themselves being called pillars, the apostles at least. Galatians 2.9 Paul says, and when James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived that the grace, the grace of God was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. According to Ephesians 2.20, here's how the church is built, folks. It is built upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles like John, like James, like Peter, like Paul and those closely associated with them like Barnabas, like Luke, like Mark and the church is built upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles with Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. That's why they're called pillars. Do you see in that strength? Do you see in that Wisdom and years and maturity. They didn't get that by inertia. They didn't get that by sitting around eating bonbons on the couch. They didn't get that by lackadaisical, undisciplined lifestyles. They didn't get that by assuming that the only time you need to open up your Bible is Sunday morning at 10.15 so that you can find out what the Word is for the day It's an opportunity for you to open your Bibles each and every day in every class and in every opportunity for you to say, what hath God said? What's God's will? What's His plan? What are His purposes? Why did this happen? What's going on? What's happening in our world? What's God's perspective on this? How should I respond to that controversy? What is God's will? How do I know how to live my Christian life in a way that pleases Him? How can I glorify Him in the right way? You find that out by ascribing to and believing and applying the very truth which is the pillar. The church is the load-bearing wall. It's the infrastructure. It means everything. It means everything. You don't affirm the pillar of the truth which is the church. You've missed the whole point. Like a recent book title, and it's actually a bad book, Adventures in Missing the Point. The the church is the pillar of the truth. How are you understanding and applying and building upon in your own life and for the sake of others 
this very pillar. And then lastly, he says the church, this repository of divine truth, is the buttress. Oh, I love that. It even sounds manly. It is the buttress of the truth. It is the bulwark. It's it's how the church stays being the church. It's the foundation. Hedrioma. Hedrioma. The foundation, the buttress, the bulwark, only used here in our New Testaments. Not even used in Greek literature outside, Septuagint, Apocrypha, only used here in the New Testament. It's a word almost that Paul has said, I'm coining this, the church, because of its own uniqueness. I'm going to come up with a unique word that speaks of stability, permanence. Church is the bulwark. Are you a part of the church? Are you building your life upon the truth because the truth is the foundation? Do you see the building analogy, the metaphor that he's talking about here? The church, made up of the people, not buildings, but using building as a metaphor, the church, every one of us, collectively speaking, and and each individual implication thereof, the church is both the foundation of it all, Jesus Christ being the cornerstone, and it is also all of the supporting infrastructural columns that make the building what it is. You don't have a foundation, you don't have a building. You don't have the infrastructure, you don't have a building. You try to put the foundation without the infrastructure, what happens to the walls and the roof? They fall down, there's no load-bearing, you can't do it. And you can't have four walls and a roof without a foundation, it'll collapse. You've got to have them both. And Paul knows this, and he says, you're God's building, and what you are is that you are the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Are you guarding the truth? You say, no, I, I can't say that I am. Well, then guess what? The ministry training center is for you. If you haven't availed yourself of a class of the ministry training center, I suspect that one of the answers then would be, if you were, if you were able to do that, you would find out in a greater way and you would be more useful to the kingdom because you would find out that you could be used by the greater opportunity for your knowledge and the application of that knowledge to be expanded in your life, that you would be a greater, more useful servant of Jesus Christ because you would be one of those living stones being built up on that foundation and with that truth so that you could help others in a greater way and help yourself as well. Who wouldn't want to do that? Who wouldn't want to do that? And you know what? The church is the entity, not parachurch, not some fine Christian organization out there. That's not their responsibility. We thank God for them. And sometimes they even do things because the local church isn't doing what it needs to do. I grant you that. But when the local church is assigned to do its own training and its own teaching and its own theological education as we are attempting to do, it is the very blessing of God on that place. Why? Because the church is responsible to be the pillar and support of the church. The household of God is built in that way. We're the church of the living God so that God will bless the church and build up the church so that the church is what the church ought to be, what the church is. And if the church isn't doing it, if the local church isn't involved in this, it's a weak church, it's a struggling church, it's a deprived church, but if the church is doing it in the way that they ought, and it may not always be with a formal structure like we're talking about with the ministry training center, the expositor seminary, and other godly people who are serving and teaching in this church in Bible studies and care groups and in other ways. But if you believe that this is the main methodology of the church, the main reason that the church exists, then you don't understand the very purpose of the church. Preeminently, the church exists as a repository for divine truth. How are you growing in the truth? This is, this is a clarion call for all of us. Bob Sosi says as I close, throughout the course of history, it's a wonderful book that he's written, 
another one of my mentors from Talbot Seminary, wonderful man. He wrote a book called The Church in God's Program. This is what he says from it. Throughout the course of history, God has worked in a variety of ways through individuals, nations, and peoples. The focus of his present work is the church. That which began in the scriptures as men and women were called to acknowledge the lordship of Christ continues today in fulfillment of Christ's promise to build his church. Not only is Christ building his church, but it is the primary instrument through which he ministers in the world. Did you get that? The primary instrument in which he's ministering in the world. As Christ was sent by the Father, so the church bears the ambassadorial role for its Lord as sent ones with a message of reconciliation to the world. That's what we're all about. Is it missions? Of course. It is the mission of the church. Is it to evangelize lost people? Of course. Is it for the opportunity for us to have mutual edification and fellowship and ministry? Of course. Is it for the opportunity for us to enjoy one another and to grow in those contexts? Of course. But it is the preeminent instrument of God in the world to be the pillar and support foundation of the truth. We lose it there. We've lost it all. If I lose my emphasis on the truth... Dismiss me immediately and get somebody in here who will continue to preach the truth. And if you, by that same token, have lost your love for the truth, if you're not diligent about seeking the truth, then you're in sin. But if you love the truth, if you're committed to the truth, if you want the truth embedded deeply within your soul... Find out every means possible for the truth to go into your soul for the glory of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of the church, the pillar and support of the truth. Amen. Let's bow together in prayer. Oh, Father. Oh, how we need to love the truth. Not for the sake of truth itself, but for what truth reveals It reveals you, your plan, your purpose for reconciling the world to yourself. Oh, Lord, I pray that our ministry training center and the expositor seminary would burst forth, bursting out of its seams with people who want to know the truth so that they might continue the legacy of what we are, the pillar and foundation of it. Oh, Lord, please don't let spiritual lethargy and undisciplined lifestyles and the temptations of the world to crowd out our desire for the truth. May we live it and breathe it and proclaim it to others. Because we are the church. May we live it out for your glory and for the exaltation of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.